you turn with me to Ephesians and to chapter 2, and we'll begin reading at the 11th verse. As you turn there, I want to say again what a great privilege it is to be here and to be in this pulpit on this day. At Parkside, we have been standing with you, at least in prayer, in this transition, and we have been looking forward to all of the events that have now begun to unfold. And in many ways, because of all kinds of links, uh, we feel ourselves to be sincere and realistic partners with you in the gospel. I had a tour around the building when I was in town in the early part of last week, a week ago on Tuesday. Uh, Paul, your pastor, took me around, and it was thrilling to see uh, everything and to uh, have the opportunity to be in the pulpit. I'm glad to be introduced uh, by Liam, whom I met some years ago in St. Andrews, and we've been friends ever since. And of course, to sit with uh, Mr. Prime is always for me somewhat scary and a benediction. Um, a, f a few years ago, uh, I was here in Scotland with a, a group of ministers, and we started to invent doggerels for one another. It has started because somebody quoted the old, the old chestnut. Uh, there once was a preacher called Spurgey who really detested liturgy, but his sermons are fine, and I use them as mine, and so do most of the clergy. And, uh, <laughs> So, so we started with that, and then we moved around, and uh, someone made up one for one and one for another, and they made up one for me. It went like this. Uh, there once was a preacher called Beg. Charlotte Chapel is part of his bio. Um, his sermons are fine, but he's no Derek Prime. <laughs> so he took himself off to Ohio. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Ephesians 2 and verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together 
to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. Amen. Father, we pray that as we have our Bibles open before us, that the Spirit of God will be our teacher and that we might be brought to an understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be conformed to his image. For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're dipping into what is a magnificent letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, John Mackay, a former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, tells in one of his writings of how, as a 14-year-old boy in the highlands of Scotland, he was reading uh, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And on that occasion, he said, a boyish rapture in the highland hills it was, and made I did, he says, a passionate protestation to Jesus Christ among the rocks in the starlight. I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. And many years later, giving a series of lectures here at Edinburgh University, he referred to Paul's letter to the Ephesians as the distilled essence of the Christian religion, truth that sings, doctrine set to music. Now, obviously, to come as we're going to come to these few verses at the end of chapter 2, we have to either do a lot of homework for ourselves or assume a certain level of understanding. The context can be best understood by noticing uh, the development of Paul's thought uh, in just a couple of phrases or words, really. Therefore, remember that formerly or at one time, as it is in the English Standard Version there in verse 11, at one time, and then down into verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, and then down to verse 19, consequently, or so then. At one time, we were, he says, and he's referring particularly to the Gentiles. He's writing to a Jewish and a Gentile uh, congregation, those who were near being the Jewish people with all the promises and the covenants, those who were far away as the pagan Gentiles who had none of these benefits in growing up. But he says, at one time, we were alienated from God. He says, you need to remember that you didn't believe, that you didn't behave as God intended, and you didn't belong. In fact, classically, he says, we were hopeless and we were helpless. It's not a very nice description, is it? But it's a very honest description of what it means to be outside of Christ, alienated. But now, he's gone on to say in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, we have been reconciled to God through the cross, and not only to God, but also to one another. And the great division then, of course, was between the Jew and the Gentile. That's the significance of his reference to this wall of hostility, whereby the Jew was marked out from all who lived around them. And now, in the Lord Jesus, these things have been changed down to verse 19. So he says, here's the result of all of that, or this is what has then ensued. Consequently, he says, we have a new nature and we have a new status. 
and as a result of what Christ has achieved, and as a result of that achievement being announced, they have come to believe. In fact, if you turn one page in your Bible back to chapter 1, you will see his reference to that in verse 13 of chapter 1, writing particularly with the Gentiles in mind, and you also were included, notice the phrase, in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So really, we can summarize it, alienated, reconciled, and then transformed, or if you like, being transformed. Because he begins negatively here in verse 19, consequently, you are no longer. Now, this is very, very important. He begins in the negative by making sure that the Ephesians realize the dramatic change that has been brought about in them through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, there is a real and observable difference between what you were and what you are now. In other words, they have been converted. In Paul's case, his conversion was marked by drama, wasn't it? There was a voice from heaven. There was the light that shone brighter than the noonday sun. He was blinded by it all. Those elements were unique to his story. Not many people, probably not any people, would declare that they had come along a similar path. But all who are in Christ have come out of darkness into light. All who are in Christ have come from a broad road onto a narrow road. All who are in Christ are now no longer what they once were. There is a second volume in their lives. Volume one was alienation from God, disruption, hostility, and brokenness. Volume two, all of that has been changed. It's worth pausing, isn't it, and just recognizing the fact that when a person is truly converted, when a person is truly converted, they have an awareness of the things about which Paul writes. You must check this on your own. I won't take you on a rabbit trail through Ephesians, but they have a new awareness of the love of God and of the mercy of God, God who is rich in mercy. Before then, they never talk about God being rich in mercy. If they mention God, he may be an idea, a construct, as some kind of dimension within them caught up in the pantheism of the day. But now, in Jesus, it's all changed. God, who is rich in mercy. He is the God who has come to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not for them faith, simply acknowledging intellectually certain facts that are true of Jesus. It's not for them about connecting, as people talk, to a kind of higher power or plugging into divinity. It's not for them to talk about embracing spirituality, but rather what they talk about is that all that God has promised to them has become theirs in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are now the beneficiaries of what Jesus has done, and they have received this at the only place they can, and they have received it in the only way they can by coming to God through Christ and entering into all the benefits of what it means to be made new. You see, the converted individual does not ask, 
why do we have to go to church? Well, he may if he's 14 or if she's 12 and having a bad Sunday morning, yes. But by and large, no. The converted individual says, where can I find God's people? The converted individual says, where can I go to hear God's Word? How can I enjoy Christian fellowship? I wonder, are you converted today? It's vitally important to understand where we are in relationship to this. Because faith in the Lord Jesus, you see, makes the greatest of distinctions. John's gospel begins with the clarity, doesn't it? Two groups. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Another group, but to those who received him. So those who did not receive him, or do not receive him, and those who have received him. The consequently, the but now experience is the experience of those who have been placed in Christ. William Matson, who grew up in West Hackney in London in 1833, studied at St. John's College, Cambridge, and wrote a number of songs. Not many of them saw the light of day, and his most famous is his most autobiographical. It begins, Lord, I was blind, I could not see. And it continues, if you know the hymn, Lord, I was deaf, Lord, I was dumb, Lord, I was dead. And then the glorious closing verse, For thou hast made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, and the dead to live. So that we just need to be clear that what Paul is dealing with here in the progression of his thought as he goes on now to say these things, and we're going to notice just three, he is saying in light of the wonder of all that precedes it, starting with this great symphony of praise at the beginning of chapter 1 and running all the way through now to the end of chapter 2. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You're no longer stateless and friendless and Christless. But what are you? Number one, fellow citizens with God's people. Fellow citizens with God's people. I had this in mind before this past week, but it seems to me that it is good to be reminded, if you are a believer this morning, where your real citizenship is. If you're confused about where you belong, to which country you're a part of, what your passport should read, and everything else, you can rest assured tonight in Jesus that the wonder and the wonder of all wonders is that your citizenship is in heaven with Christ in God, Philippians, and that you are fellow citizens with all who belong to him. A new identity brought into a new community, citizens in the kingdom of God. A citizenship which secures us. We belong. A citizenship which transforms us. We behave. A citizenship which assures us of, of, of all the rights of that citizenship. I don't always admit to this, but I am also a citizen of the United States of America. I figured it was a smart move. They might not let me in one day, and so it would help. Done not out of a great deal of conviction, I must confess. Nevertheless, when I became a citizen, all that had been my wife's as a result of birth now became mine. I had the same right of access. I had the same responsibilities. I had the same privileges 
of voting and so on. And when that happens, and we are included within the framework of that on a social or a political level, it changes things. And so when Paul says, you are now fellow citizens with God's people, think about what that meant coming from his pen. He was not that. He was an opponent of God's people. He did not believe in Jesus. And you may be here this morning, and that's exactly how you feel. It's interesting, perhaps, but you, you could never say that you march under the banner of King Jesus. Perhaps as we sang the song, King of Kings and Majesty, you find yourself saying, I wonder what that really means. Well, for Paul, you see, it was an amazing truth. And once he had been included in that kingdom, his story was now of the king. He gave then his entire life all of his energies, all of his intellect, all of his powers of leadership were then devoted to the king. And through him, the kingdom of God expanded. Many of you are here this morning from different parts of the world, and you are here perhaps this morning in part on account of those who from these shores went to where you are. People like C.T. Studd, people like Helen Rosefear, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, said C.T. Studd, then no sacrifice that I could ever make for him could ever be too great. I just saw Helen Rosevere a few months ago in Ireland. She's badly uh, affected by a stroke, virtually lost all power of speech. If you've read any missionary biography, you may have read, Give Me This Mountain. And there she lay in the bed. Her glasses were clean, her eyes were clear, her hair had been done, but she's immobilized. And I had to do all of the conversation, both the questions and the answers. But those who know me said, well, that was no challenge for you. You do that in any case, in most conversations, but it was a real challenge. And her companion, before I left, she said, now, Helen, Alistair is leaving. Do you have a blessing for him? Will you not say one thing to him before he goes? And she turned her head and she said, Keep on keeping on. You're in the service of the king. You see, that's how you know you're really in the king's service, because you want everyone to know the king. You want everyone to submit to the king. You want everyone to know the joy and privilege of such citizenship. Secondly, fellow members, fellow citizens with God's people, and fellow members or members of his household, so that the identity of the believer finds its expression not only in the fact that we are citizens of a kingdom, but in a more intimate way, we're actually members of a household or we're engaged in family life. In other words, the Christian church, the local fellowship of God's people, for example, here at Charlotte Chapel, we don't relate to one another simply because we have the same passports, because we don't. But we relate to one another in Jesus because we have the same Father. That when we cry out to God as Father, and we do so together, we can look along the row and say, this is my brother, this is my sister. We are members of a family. You see, the church isn't simply an aggregate of diverse people. The church 
is made up of individuals who are united to Christ and therefore are united to one another by virtue of our union with Christ. So that again, it comes back to this whole issue. Do I belong to Christ? Am I united with Christ? Have I been buried with him in his death and raised with him to newness of life? Am I, as Ephesians 1 says, seated with him in the heavenly places? Am I able to look down? Am I aware of the immeasurable riches of his grace? So that when I come amongst the people of God on the Lord's day, the stimulus is a stimulus along the lines of one another to say, come let us sing praise to the King. Jesus our King. Jesus our King. This is our song who to Jesus belong. Glory to Jesus, to Jesus, the King. It's a wonderful thing to be part of a family, isn't it? To be away from your family is hard. I've been gone for two weeks. My wife sent me just a cryptic email in the last few hours. It just said, come home, come home. Well, that's nice. It's better than stay away. <laughs> or why don't you stay for another two weeks? We all love to come home. And for local church is your family home. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Families are interesting, aren't they? Brothers and sisters, aware of each other's quirks and foibles and failures and pluses and minuses. And the New Testament is so wonderfully helpful in relationship to that. Paul uses phraseology like bear with one another, or in more contemporary language, put up with one another. Because that's what family does. That's how families work. As a result of the grace of God, we're humbled. As a result of being humbled and seeing ourselves as we truly are, then we are able to be gracious to others. When we reflect upon the immensity of the love of God for us, that we were chosen in Him before the creation of the world, before the Cairngorm Mountains were raised, and I just came from the, from the highlands of Scotland, before those mountains found their frame, your name was written down in Christ. Townend puts it in contemporary terms, loved before the dawn of time, chosen by my Maker, hidden in my Savior. I am His, and He is mine, cherished for eternity the immensity of the love of God that is a shared love because we have in Jesus the same Father. Paul says it's very, very important in chapter 1 that you have the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you might understand these things. That's one of the reasons that we sit under the instruction of the Bible, that why the primary emphasis on the teaching ministry of the church for the members of the family so that together we might be raised up. In the Highlands this week, my brother-in-law and I had the occasion to find hospitality in a home of a couple that we've never ever met, any of us met. And after supper and the coffee and the scones, out came the metrical psalm books. And the psalm books were, were passed around. And we looked at one another and said, here we go. And we did go. And he gave out the 121st psalm, and we sang the 121st psalm. And one led in prayer, and another led in prayer. Where in the world are you going to find such a thing? Only in the family of God. And if you're not a part of the family of God, it will be so alien to you. But when we sing together, I to the hills 
will lift mine eyes from whence doth come mine aid. My safety cometh from the Lord, who heaven and earth hath made. He won't let your foot slide. He who watches over you, he doesn't slumber or sleep. And he's your father. This is your family. Once it was all hostility. Once we were all strangers. But now we're not. And here's the thing. Who we see ourselves to be individually shapes the flavor and the, the vibe of a local congregation. If we see ourselves to be the beneficiaries of God's grace, if we see ourselves as those who were once stateless and friendless and Christless, but who have been pursued and wooed and won and put within this family, then there will be no place for snobbishness. There will be no place for the divisions that once marked us. Because you will notice that this is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus as the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, or the capstone. We don't have time to work all through that. Essentially, he's saying this, everything fits into Christ, and Christ is the key to every part fitting into all the other parts. The work of the apostles and the prophets was a unique work. It was an indispensable work. It was an untransmissible work. And on account of that, Jesus is the stone upon whom all the other parts of the building fit. We can think this morning about what a wonder it is to have been in Rose Street and what all that was represented in that building. And now we're in this building. But actually, the buildings will come and go. The real issue is whether we are being built together in this way, whether we understand ourselves to be the living stones of First Peter, citizens of a kingdom, members of a family, and finally, and we're there, stones in God's holy temple, stones in God's holy temple, in Him, in Him, and only in Him. That's why all attempts, attempts at church unity and everything flounder throughout all of history, except they are in Him, in Christ. The whole building is joined together, and it rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. So, the questions of children are wonderful, aren't they? You're driving in the car, and you think it's all going very well, and it's very quiet. And then one, a little voice pipes up from the back. Daddy, where was I before I was born? And you say, well, ask your mom that a little later. <laughs> but that, they, they, they don't let us away. But they, do, they say, Dad, where on earth does God live? Where does God live? Does he live in that building? Where does God live? Where on earth does God live? Here's the answer. In him you're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The Jewish readers of Ephesians understood all the significance of the tabernacle, all of the importance of the temple, all of the focus on going up to Jerusalem. But not now. He's not talking here about a tabernacle or about a temple in that sense. Jesus, God, is to be found on earth where his people gather. He's found on earth where his people gather. So when we sing, for example, the 84th Psalm, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. 
We are singing there about what God does as he communes with his people in the fellowship and worship of his Son. Cowper, classically, along the same lines, Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. There's no sanctuary, there's no special room where he is more particularly present than in another room. We may say so reverently, but the living God is as present with the children this morning under the ages of six who are being instructed by the Sunday school teachers. He is present among his people. He is the dwelling place of his people. And the magnificent thing about it is that he chooses to do this with stones that look like you and look like me. Funny-looking stones. I don't want to be unkind to you, but I'm just looking at you. I mean, it's… <laughs> you remember C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity? He says, you know, imagine your, your life to be a house. And uh, God comes, and he begins to rearrange things. And then he takes out hammers and chisels, and he begins to smash the place around because he doesn't want you to simply to be like the little cottage with which he started, but he wants you to become the dwelling place of his glory. What a wonder it is. What a privilege it is. And what an amazing opportunity it is for us here and now, here in the city of Edinburgh, and let's just finish here because we are in Edinburgh, in a world that is marked by hostility, in a nation that is marked by dividing walls, as much today as perhaps in the last while, where the conversation that immediately follows has to do with the distinctions and the divisions that mark our culture. Where in the world is there an opportunity for us to deal with this? Well, I tell you where it isn't. It isn't in a local church fellowship where the gathering is based on our achievements or on our acquisitions or on our merits or on our privileges. Those things all divide. Those things are all the occasion ultimately of pride. I, have at I attended here. I acquired that. I have done this. I am that. You see how it's all reversed in Jesus? All those things are not irrelevant, but they're not the issue. The issue is that in Jesus, those matters are now subsumed under the wonder of His grace. So in a local congregation where God dwells by His Spirit, matters of race and of class and of culture have to be brought to the very foot of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that when people come in who find themselves wrestlers, if you like, with a sea of life, they encounter a family. They encounter stones in the process of being chiseled around, and they encounter people who are not saying, I'm Scottish, or I'm remaining, or I'm this. They said, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Because he's building, you see, a temple. I've been asking uh, Derek Prime for a few days now 
he could remember this lady's last name. We've got to her first name. It was Rita, I think. I used to visit her in the day. I used to do a lot of visits. If Mr. Prime said do 10, I tried to do 15. Many of the people that I visited were unable to really respond very often. And one stands out to me because the lady had had a stroke. I went to visit her. Always her sister-in-law was with her. She had lost the power of speech, but she had been—she'd loved to sing. And she was able to communicate through her sister-in-law to me. And so, with great frequency, we ended our time together by trying miserably to sing a song that went like this. We are building day by day as the moments pass away, a temple that this world cannot see. And every victory won by grace will be sure to find a place in that building for eternity. Actually, that lady suffering from a stroke was building into my 24-year-old life by her testimony to the faithfulness of God, so that 40 years on, as I address you this morning, she is not forgotten to me, and her testimony remains. A faithful citizen, family member, and stone in the temple of God's grace. It would be enough, wouldn't it, to have on your tombstone here she lies, citizen of the kingdom, member of God's family, a stone in God's building. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that we can always go and read it and see if these things are there. Thank you that it comes to search us and to know us. And so we pray that your word will accomplish the purposes to which you have appointed it this day. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.